Hello, and welcome to Taxation Nation. I'm Catherine Fuller. Our topic today on Taxation Nation is going to be subpart F, the MRT, the Moore's case, and something of interest to those of you who work in the financial districts. So if you work on the very south side of the city of New York, if you work on LaSalle Street in Chicago, or if you work on the east side of Milwaukee, those are the skyscrapers I grew up in the shadows of, this episode is for you. You might want to listen up. So what are we talking about today when we say subpart F and the MRT? Uh, so Public Law 115-97, which you and I commonly refer to as the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, which came into being in 2017, brought sweeping amendments to the 1986 Internal Revenue Code. A particular concern to certain U.S. shareholders of certain foreign corporations were some changes that were made to part, part F, Section 965 of the Code. So there was this new tax created, kind of referred to as a transition tax. So it classifies deferred foreign income of certain foreign corporations, such as CFCs or controlled foreign corporations, to be subpart F income for tax year 2027, looking back to the last version of the tax code, 1986. So from January 1, 1987 through 2017, we are going to do this one-time tax on foreign undistributed income. So if you had accumulated earnings that you had not distributed out, that you hadn't repatriated, we were going to tax you this one time to basically catch you up on the taxes on all of that. Um, the tax is called the Mandatory Repatriation Tax, the MRT, because it basically creates the taxation effect of the earnings having been repatriated, although they physically weren't. So prior to this change, U.S. shareholders of CFCs were taxed on things like dividends, interest, earnings that were invested in certain U.S. property, but not on accumulated earnings. Income from active business activities was taxed if and when repatriated to the U.S. through a distribution loan or investment in U.S. property, but not until then. And that essentially incentivized shareholders of CFCs not to engage in these activities. Like, why would you, right? Why would you do it if you were going to be taxed? So basically, we've created kind of unintentionally this little tax shelter offshores. So by some estimates, by 2015, CFCs had accumulated an estimated $2.6 in earnings offshore that were not presently subject to U.S. taxation. So that's, if you take that and figure out what tax was due on that, we're talking, you know, millions and millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, so what else got changed as a result of our Tax Cuts and Jobs Act here in this section? These earnings are going to be taxed going forward as well. So effective January 1, 2018, a CFC's income was taxable under subpart F to include current earnings from this business. So basically going forward, we weren't going to recreate the same problem or opportunity anymore. We're going to be basically keeping up on the taxation on your undistributed earnings. Uh, TCJA also effectively eliminated any other taxes on these CFCs undistributed earnings before 2018. So it's not like you were going to be hit twice on something. We're just going to catch you up with this one-time tax, and then we're going to keep on it from this point forward. So that's kind of the background on subpart F and the MRT. So then who are the Moors? You know? Why are they going to the Supreme Court next month here in December 2023? So the Moors, Charles and Kathleen Moore, they're a married couple. Back in 05, they made an investment in a CFC called Kissencraft, 
And that $40,000 investment gave them 11% share of the company and ownership share. Um, it's an Indian company that basically provides farmers with like modern day implements. So kind of a feel good angle on this thing. So they made this investment and that was it. They don't actively manage the company. They're not on payroll, nothing. They've taken nothing out of the company. They've never got a dime of interest or dividends or anything like that. That's it. Um, by the time that Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed, there was about 508,000 in undistributed earnings in the company. The Moors filed their 2017 return, didn't even know about the MRT, found out about it and did the right thing. They refiled the return, they paid the extra tax, but then they sued for a refund. And they're suing, or they sued for a refund based on two grounds, both on the constitution. They're claiming that the MRT is unconstitutional because they say their undistributed earnings, this unrealized income is not taxable as income under the 16th amendment. They contend that this transition tax is an unapportioned direct tax. So 16th amendment says if it's income, income tax, we don't apportion income tax. You know, that's your own problem. It doesn't get apportioned amongst the number of heads in your state or anything like that. Their argument is this isn't an income tax. Therefore, it has to be apportioned because it's not apportioned. It's therefore in violation of the Sixth Amendment and therefore unconstitutional. Their second leg that they're standing on here is that they're saying that taxation of 30 years of unrealized income violates the due process clause under the Fifth Amendment. Um, and as we discussed earlier, the reason they've chosen this 30 years, it's not some random number. It's a look back to the last revision of the Internal Revenue Code, so 1986. Uh, they were defeated with their original suit. They were defeated upon appeal in the Ninth uh, District. They asked to be heard in front of the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said yes. Uh, so what does that mean to us? What, what implications could this have? Basically, what they're saying is that there is sort of, if you will, if you want to coin a phrase, there should be no taxation without realization, right? We are all aware that there are plenty of places in the current IRS code where there is taxation without realization, so to speak, right? Realization currently is not a protected constitutional right. It's not, we have a right to realize something and then we get taxed. It doesn't work that way right now in the constitution. And there's plenty of places in the IRS code, and I'll give you a couple of examples here in a minute, where we don't have an event of realization and yet the tax is there. So we've got guilty, for example, the global intangible low taxed income tax, which is under section 951A. You've got imputed interest under section 7872. You have exit tax and ex, uh, expatriate property, that's section 877A. So if you become an expat, we treat it like your assets were all sold, et cetera, et cetera. And the one we're going to do a bit of a deeper dive into today is futures contracts. So all of you in the financial districts who I alluded to earlier, this could potentially affect you. So futures contracts are governed under Section 1256. So how does it look today? And how could the outcome of the Moore's case change how Section 1256 looks? Uh, so right now, where are we at today? It says, among other assets that are taxed in Section 1256, uh, there is no realization event. You know, you're not taking a check. Um, it covers regulated futures contracts, foreign currency contracts, non-equity options contracts, dealer non-equity options, and dealer securities future contracts. 
That's all the types of derivatives that 1256 governs. Uh, specifically excluded, uh, thanks, thanks to a specific law, are swaps. That gets very complicated. We could do a whole podcast on that. So we'll leave that one be, but swaps are excluded. But if you're dealing in futures contracts, commodities contracts, Section 1256 does affect you. And you already know this because this law has been in effect since 1983. So you know what this does for you. Um, the section says that every 1256 contract held by a taxpayer at the close of the taxable year shall be treated as being sold for its fair market value on the last business day of the year. And it's taxable. Any gain or loss shall be taken into account for the taxable year. And then they have sort of an arbitrary little method for figuring out ooh, how it's going to be taxed. So it's basically 60% is going to be treated as a long-term gain and 40% is treated at a short, as a short-term gain. Uh, but you are taxed. It's sort of a mark-to-market system. At the end of the year, whatever you're holding, you're going to mark-to-market and you're going to chalk up your gains and losses and you're going to pay tax on it for that year. So has there been a realization event in that case? No. Do you have any more money, any earnings in your hand on January 1 versus December 30th, December 31st. No, right? There was no realization event, but that section of code treats us as if it were and taxes it accordingly so. Uh, interestingly enough, this has been challenged before, and I think that will come into play regardless of whether the Moors are successful at the Supreme Court. Uh, in Murphy versus United States, which was a case in 1993 that also, ironically enough, was heard by the Ninth Circuit, same circuit that heard more in their appeals. Uh, it was a case that was decided where you had a commodities trader named Charles Murphy, and he argued that Congress had exceeded their mandate by taxing unrealized gains. He was making the same argument that it was unrealized and therefore he should not have to pay tax. He lost. The courts disagreed. But can you guess why they disagreed? Like, What grounds do you think they might have disagreed on knowing that he's a commodities trader? He lost on the good old concept that we learned back in tax one with Dr. Key, constructive receipt. So traders who hold futures contracts are entitled to withdraw their gains at the close of the business day in these mark-to-market systems. So what was happening prior to the changes to 1256, is the traders were exploiting timing. They were basically able to defer the tax on what would have been a short-term gain, and they could convert that short-term gain into something more tax preferable, like a long-term gain, by just sitting on it. So they just wouldn't withdraw it. They would just wait until they became into a more uh, tax-favorable situation. Then they would withdraw it and pay the tax. So obviously, uh, Senate did a study, uh, the report number 144 said that section 1256 will end the issue of use of futures for tax avoidance purposes, because clearly that's what people were doing, right? You could use these futures contracts, the gains that you were making on them to kind of like hide the earnings out in them until you actually withdrew them. Uh, so Mr. Murphy, he lost his appeal. Um, the appellate court's decision, part of it reads, section 1256 is premised on the doctrine of constructive receipt because the taxpayer who trades futures contracts receives profits as a matter of right daily. So if the trader opts not to withdraw his or her profits, 
This is by choice, not by restriction, right? But the gains are going to be realized just the same under 1256. Uh, they quoted Halvering versus Horst in their opinion, which interestingly enough is also being cited in the Moore case, that same case. And in Halvering versus Horst, the Ninth Circuit said or quoted, the power to dispose of income is the equivalent of ownership of it. The exercise of that power to procure the payment of income is, the, is another of the enjoyment of it, hence the realization of the income by him who exercises it. So even though he doesn't pull those earnings out, the trader essentially is in control of those earnings, aren't they? And by being in control of it, you are, you're in constructive receipt. You're determining what happens to it. It's of your pleasure, your enjoyment to decide to take it now or to leave it till later, but that's not going to delay you paying the tax on it. Uh, so according to the courts, they said, hey, you know, we you will be paying the tax. And uh, they further opined that this is definitely a law that was a good law. It fell under reasonableness. They said, because of the unique accounting method governing futures contracts, the gains inherent in them are properly treated as constructively received. Congress acted well within its authority when it decided to treat them differently from other capital assets. Thus, Section 1256 is neither arbitrary, capricious, or confiscatory, and is a proper exercise of Congress's constitutional power to tax. That's a pretty strong statement. I'm wondering, regardless of the outcome of more, how you would go back on something like that, where you point blank said, this is constitutional and say, no, really, we've decided realization is not there. And this 12, section 1256 is not constitutional. It would be pretty hard in my unprofessional opinion. I'm not an expert, but it seemed to me to be very difficult to backtrack and get your way out of that one. Um, there are others who agree with me, people far more educated. Um, Professor of Law Ruben S. Aviana at the University of Michigan Law School. He's written uh, several articles on the topic. Um, one of them is entitled, If More is Reversed. Um, and he also disagrees with the plaintiff's comparison of their tax situation to that in Murphy. Uh, he's got a comical passage in here that I'll share with you. I kind of liked it. He says, this analogy to the constructive receipt doctrine is misplaced because it would mean that any controlling shareholder could be treated as constructively receiving the income of a corporation she controls because she can always make the board of board declare a dividend, which would be unwelcome news to Mr. Bezos, Musk, and Zuckerberg. Exactly, right? That, that doesn't happen. Constructive receipt doesn't apply. He continues, nor is Part F or guilty based on constructive realization because they apply to 10% by vote U.S. shareholders who cannot force a dividend. So there's where the similarities essentially end, right? You've got the Moors who are arguing, you know, there's no realization event, they shouldn't be taxed. You look at the Murphy case, is there realization? The court says yes. It's just a matter of choice that you didn't take the earnings out. Therefore, you had constructive receipt of them. So it's not the same thing per se. Um, other opinions uh, in an amicus brief that was filed by the state of Arizona, California, Colorado, and about 12 other states plus D.C., they said in their amicus brief, 
This court should avoid the chaos of the outcome of all at all costs. Their brief says petitioners have never argued that any tax apart from the MRT is unconstitutional. So even those who support the petitioners and that they question the MRT, they're saying that even the petitioners themselves aren't asking the courts to rope in a bunch of other taxes and basically cause chaos, you know, kind of a crumbling of the tax system in the parts of it that currently tax without realization. Um, they further comment in their brief, their supporting Amakai have likewise explicitly avowed that they have no quarrel with any other taxes. And they cite the Cato brief, the Cato Institute's brief, as a matter of fact, which said, like subpart F, guilty is a tax only on CFC's current year income, and it clearly passes muster. So interesting stuff here. Um, what could happen? Uh, there are numerous, numerous outcomes the court could take. No one can predict. Um, one possibility to think about is that the court could agree that the 16th Amendment does include a realization requirement, but that the MRT satisfies that requirement, which is essentially what Murphy is saying. Um, okay, yeah, we were looking at realization, but in the case of commodities traders, we're going to stand on the premise that realization has occurred. And that maybe will be what the outcome will be with the Supreme Court with the Moors as well. Something to think about, something to keep an eye on, particularly if you work in the commodities market. That's it for Taxation Nation today. Uh, join me for another episode soon. And in the meanwhile, be well. <music>